Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jay Swaminathan, who is a professor of operations and faculty director of the Rethink Value Change Lab at the Keenan Flagler Business School at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's a distinguished fellow of the Institute of Operations Research and Management Science, Manufacturing and Service Operations Management Society, and Production and Operations Management Society. His work with UNICEF provided impetus for changes in the global supply chain planning. Welcome, Jay. Well, thank you, Gail, for inviting me to this podcast today. Sure, absolutely. So I want to uh, maybe touch on a few of your uh, papers, recent papers, and one of them is entitled Carrot or Stick, Supply Diversity and Its Impact on Carbon Emission Reduction Strategies. Uh, where you examine consequences of knowledge sharing and monitoring-based governance strategies on emission reduction. Uh, and so you're looking at um, how engaged the suppliers and, um, a, a, and buyers are in the supply chain and how they share information and, and how that might impact in the overall carbon footprint. Yeah, so this is um, uh, a study that is looking at um, a, you know carbon footprint reduction in the in, in overall and if you think about uh, you know uh, green supply chains or carbon footprint reduction you can put it into three categories scope one scope two and scope three mm-hmm. uh, and so you know there have been a number of studies done around the fact that the scope one and scope two reductions which are typically around what a firm is doing within its own um, uh, four walls, as well as in some of the strategies that it might have in, in terms of its uh, operations and logistics, yeah. that amount uh, is actually quite limited. So most of the firms recognize that in today's world, we are in a, uh, a highly integrated uh, global supply chain environment, and a lot of uh, uh, carbon footprint reduction uh, is going to come from scope three. Yeah. And scope three looks at not only 
um, you know, your uh, operations, but it also looks at, uh, you know, operations of your suppliers and their suppliers and, and, and so on. So um, this study, uh, we're looking at, um, uh, we created a kind of a unique data set com uh, combining multiple data sets that are available uh, out there. So one of them is the carbon disclosure project from Europe, mm. um, CDP, and they have been conducting uh, surveys um, with the leading manufacturers all over the world, actually leading firms all over the world, um, about various things, including asking them about what are the kinds of things they are doing with their suppliers, what has been their focus, how do they measure suppliers, carbon footprint reduction, mm. do they have, uh, you know, um, uh, policies, uh, do they have incentives, and so they have this type of uh, survey that is going on for a a few years. We also uh, coupled that with um, uh, another data set called FactSet, which has uh, uh, information about um, the key suppliers for a given firm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, um, uh, and, and, and one other um, uh, data set that we connected with, which, which uh, kind of measures the, um, you know, uh, hardcore numbers around how well the companies are doing in terms of their own um, uh, carbon footprint uh, reduction efforts. Mm -hmm. So this study, what it uh, tries to do, so it's a kind of a unique first, uh, first in, um, you know, uh, in, in kind of a class kind of study where the idea is to say that, you know, supply chains are complex um, and, and firms, uh, you know, are trying their very best to reduce the, uh, the carbon footprint in their, in their scope three uh, world. Uh, now, what is the role of supplier diversity yeah. uh, uh, on in terms of the policies and in terms of the mechanisms that these uh, firms are ending up uh, using? Mm. So what we do in this study is to kind of, um, here's where we use some artificial intelligence to do some text processing um, and, and kind of do some new, new methods around, um, you know, identifying uh, and classifying the um, these the firms in terms of uh, their policies and we kind of put them into kind of um, two types of buckets yeah um, actually maybe three buckets I would say uh, doing not much in a very you know kind of a concrete manner and then the second bucket is doing things more in terms of you know um, uh, uh, a stick approach <laughs> which is basically saying hey we need so much reduction. What have we done with respect to that? We have a scorecard. We monitor that scorecard and so on. And then the third one is more of like both the carrot and a stick kind of approach, which is more of like knowledge sharing, mm -hmm. having symposia, working with the suppliers, going to the supplier plans, taking a look at how they are, you know, performing and helping them out and uh, in terms of innovation around yeah. green. And what we find is kind of interesting in the sense that. Uh, the, the, the key message uh, in that paper is to say that uh, how diverse your supply base is mm -hmm. in terms of two dimensions, right? One is geographical and second is industrial, mm -hmm. right? So depending on how diverse your supply base is, uh, firms, uh, at least in the data set that we have been looking at, seem to adopt uh, one or the other in a kind of a, a conscious manner. So one could think about it this way, right? If everybody in your um, 
you know, a supply base all falling are, are from the same region. Yeah. Let's say all your suppliers are in China or all in suppliers are in India, all in suppliers in Mexico. Um, then the strategy adopted by the such a firm, um, uh, the same firm, the strategy would be very different mm-hmm. uh, when you have, say, one supplier each in each of these geographical regions. Right. And, 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 and the reason for that is obviously um, because of the level of um, awareness and the level of technology and the level of government scrutiny mm-hmm. each of the suppliers might face in these different regions, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one angle, and we can't, you know, actually look at that, you know, you know, in a carefully analyzed, uh, um, you know, statistical methods approach to kind of, you know, identify that uh, effect. The other reason for this difference to happen. Uh, could be when you think about, uh, uh, you know, the diversity in the, uh, in, across a multiple uh, industries. Mm. So if all your, so if you're a very focused company and you're only dealing with certain types of suppliers, so this, say you're Walmart yeah. and you have all types of suppliers in your list, uh, your strategies are going to be different, right? Mm. Um, it's, it's going to be a lot more easier in terms of uh, uh, you know, uh, monitoring when you have less number of suppliers mm-hmm. uh, and maybe they're less diverse because you can have scorecards that make sense for everybody. Uh, but as these things increase, then you tend to see that uh, as the complexity in the supply base increases, you see more and more firms um, actually going and um, working with uh, their suppliers in a more dedicated fashion. Yeah, so... Uh, there are two things um, in the paper, it looks like to me, Jay. One is the, the diversity of the suppliers, so both geographical and industrial diversity. Uh, and the other is um, engaging suppliers, right? Uh, so higher levels of engagement, information sharing uh, appears to have a positive effect. Um, it's it's a little bit counterintuitive in the sense that when you have a very large uh, and and diverse supplier base. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to engage with them in a in a consistent way, right? Yes. So so I wondered, you know, what's causing these two things to be both beneficial? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a big challenge, which is basically as your diversity of the supply base yeah. uh, increases, right? Um, you now have to get more creative. Okay? Yeah. Um, if you use the, just a straightforward, you know, scorecard kind of approach, mm. then, you know, that single scorecard may or may not fit the whole population. Right. Rather, if you now started uh, doing things which are maybe a little bit more, uh, I would call it as um, softer in nature, mm. right? So maybe you host a webinar. Mm-hmm. And uh, you invite all the major suppliers with whom you want to have a, some kind of a milestone achieved. And then even though they're all diverse, they're all going to come in from different industries, they might have something to share from each other's success stories, right, right. which then again can help you uh, in terms of pushing those boundaries. Okay. So it's, it's, uh, it's not very straightforward. And that's why this is kind of interesting yeah. what the data pans out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I want to jump into another paper that you have. It's entitled Customer Learning in Call Centers from Previous Waiting Experiences. 
So here you're looking at, you know, the, the call centers uh, and the callers into the call centers, uh, their patience and their abandonment behavior. And uh, the, the callers, repeated, uh, repeating callers are learning from their experiences from the past and that changes their behavior. So, um, you know, the, um, what you're suggesting here, I think, is that you can develop some sort of an algorithm that can be uh, sort of personalized intervention uh, for a caller, right? So that the, the firm doesn't lose the, lose, the, lose the caller through abandonment. Yeah, so this is actually a fascinating uh, piece of uh, data set that we were able to get um, where, you know, we have this data set which, which tracks, um, you know, whether when the caller called, um, and, and this is for bank, you know, in the banking sector. Yes. And then, um, you know, did they, how long did they wait? Uh, did they abandon? Um, and, um, uh, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's a kind of an interesting um, uh, study because uh, thus far what, what people have been um, using is that, well, you know, uh, in, in these types of studies, what they try to do is to say, well, there is a rational equilibrium that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, uh, comes up because callers actually know most of the things about the distribution um, of the waiting times, and then they behave in a certain way uh, in terms of, you know, solving their own um, maximization problem, uh, you know, uh, optimal stopping problem. Uh, and so um, I think this, this is the first piece of work which actually kind of tries to even uh, go there and to say, you know, do callers really know what, what's going on? Yeah. And, and, and then, from based on the data, uh, if they were rational agents, uh, so we have a structural model here around what a caller might be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so uh, the way we do the study is to have a structural model around caller behavior, uh, where we assume the caller comes in with a, a prior uh, belief around the, the waiting time distribution. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we use a Bayesian framework just because, you know, it's easier to analyze. Uh, and we basically, um, and the data fits that quite well in terms of how it pans out eventually. But, but every interaction that a customer has with the call center, they update these belief parameters. Yeah. So what we actually end up showing here is that indeed, um, so first thing that one wants to ask is, you know, do they actually learn anything? Right. Um, and uh, basically what we show is that, um, you know, they, do, they are learning. Mm. They are learning. Uh, and um, uh, we can actually uh, see that they are learning, which means uh, if they have a longer wait, then they uh, actually uh, update that. Yeah. If they, if they, um, you know, obviously this is a truncated kind of distribution where, right, right. you know, if you balk uh, and leave the system, then you don't know how long the wait could have been, but you only see the truncation, right? Yeah. So as a customer, you are, you are only updating your wait times based on your experience. Mm. So what they actually, what we actually find is that the customers are learning. And what is more interesting is because we have a structural model, now 
we can actually um, use the previous um, you know, interactions of the customer to have a model that will predict what is their current estimate. Yeah. And depending on that, we can actually do what we want to do. Now, um, what we want to do could be different for different companies. Mm -hmm. um, some of them might want to say, hey, you know what? John has been waiting in the system for a long time. He has a very, you know, he's a good customer of ours. And this is something that we need to change. Okay, let's put him ahead in the queue this time. Mm -hmm. So he's going to update his wait times. Um, the, <laughs> the, the flip side of it could be that the company looks at John and goes, oh, John is not one of our best customers anyway. You know, let's, let's make him wait a little bit longer. Anyway, he expects to wait long. So let's <laughs> just, you know, so there could be some of that. Um, so we're not um, prescribing in this um, particular study uh, what to do with that estimate. Yeah. But what we are basically saying is that through data, we can actually estimate this and we can demonstrate that indeed there is actually learning behavior uh, in the, uh, from the customers who are coming to the call center. Yeah, so, you know, uh, presumably, you, you know, uh, one could in, uh, implement some sort of an AI uh, algorithm mm -hmm. that can learn the customer, uh, how long the customer is likely to wait and, and mm -hmm. optimize the scheduling process. Uh, but it's also, like you say, could have a, some sort of a conditioning effect on the customer too. So it could be a cat and mouse game. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. once the customer finds out uh, that, you know, this is the parameters the algorithm is using, uh, the customer could actually uh, train the algorithm over time too. So it could be a cat and mouse game ultimately. Yes. And the only difference is that it could, that could play out. But I think the main challenge for, for an individual customer yeah. would be that as opposed to the AI system, which is the AI system is going to see all the customers. Right. So it's going to learn faster. For the individual customer, you know, they, they are, their learning is based on the interactions they have had with the system. Yeah. So the data points might be a little bit, you know, lower. In right. right. So that, could, that could be the estimations and, and the, uh, you know, the, the effectiveness of such an approach. Yeah might be limited by that. Right. Yeah, I want to jump into another uh, a different area altogether, Jay. So this paper is uh, entitled Net Meter Distributed Renewable Energy, a Pearl for Utilities. So electricity end users have been increasingly generating their own electricity by rooftop solar panels. And the conventional wisdom is that distributed renewable energy, uh, when, you net, when you net meter that, essentially the customer selling excess energy back to the utility uh, when they're not using it, uh, the conventional wisdom is that it is actually a bad thing for the utility, their profits will decline in the process, right? Uh, but you find something different? Yeah, so yeah, we do find something different, right? So um, this is actually, a, uh, again, a fascinating study using uh, you know, advanced modeling as well as data from uh, real life to estimate some of these parameters. Uh, fundamentally, what we are saying is a follow-up, yeah. right? Um, so everybody you know, knows about net metering, where basically a customer puts a panel on the rooftop, and then the utility ends up providing some kind of a rebate to the customer, either based on the wholesale price um, that 
they are buying the electricity from uh, uh, or the retail price, which is what they are charging to the customer. Yeah. And the fundamental idea there is to say, you know what, this is good for the, uh, the conventional wisdom is that this is good for the environment. And this is, uh, you know, that's a reason to do it, even though the utilities might uh, not benefit from it. Mm -hmm. So if you look at all over the U.S., uh, different states have got different types of arrangements, whether it's wholesale or retail. There are groups that are lobbying uh, to stop net metering because it is it could be detrimental to the existing utilities uh, business model. Okay. So uh, in that backdrop, so this study, what it does is it actually looks at the holistic, all those analysis that have been done and have come up with these recommendations uh, completely ignore the supply side market mm -hmm. um, for wholesale electricity purchase. So what happened for most of the companies um, which are um, supplying uh, electricity is that they are purchasing a good amount of uh, the electricity uh, in the wholesale market. Yeah. So when you take that wholesale market dynamics into account, as you add more people into your net metering account here, uh, it has two effects, right? One is obviously um, your demand that you need for um, your electricity mm -hmm. uh, in your region goes down, right? Because more people have that meter. Um, uh, so they, they sort um, of, yeah, more, more people uh, installing the, the panels, they become self-sufficient. Uh, yeah. So, so in some sense, the impact of that is that hey, on one hand, my demand goes down, so I cannot sell as much. And that's the idea that people have been talking about saying why it's not good for the utility. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it also has an impact on the wholesale market because your demand now across the wholesale market goes down as well right. because you don't need as much. right? Yeah. And therefore, the prices in the wholesale market will drop. And Actually, now you as a utility start procuring those um, units of electricity at a much cheaper price. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that effect, if it uh, dominates, then what happens is that what we find is there are thresholds in the population in terms of adoption. Yeah. So that as long as you are below that adoption level for net metering, it's actually beneficial for the utility. Mm. It's only when you go like maybe very high level of adoption um, in the markets that you're serving that you're going to have a detrimental effect. So what we actually, it's a policy paper, it's basically what we're saying here is that um, net metering is not necessarily a bad thing mm -hmm. for utilities. Uh, one should actually think about all the benefits that are coming to it, uh, of course, in terms of greenness and energy and so on and so forth, but also for the utilities. And there is a threshold uh, beyond which actually the utilities might suffer. So one might argue that what one wants to do here is to look at, um, you know, uh, caps rather than uh, yes, no kind of thing, mm. saying that, you know, maybe let's have a legislation that caps the amount of net meter clients in a region. Mm. Uh, and, and it's interesting because some of the utilities in some of the states seem to be doing this, you know, kind of a, you know, um, 
in a uh, in a procedural manner. Yes. Uh, because if you have to get the neck needle in, in your house, and you have to go a lot of hoops, you have to go through the you know city, and then you have to go through the utility, and so on and so forth. And what happens is that many a times, um, you know, this restricts the amount or number of people who are actually going to go into the system. Right, right. So if I understand this correctly, Jay, um, if you if you draw a curve uh, with adoption rate on the x-axis and utilities profits on the y-axis, we should see somewhat of an inverted U-type function, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an inverted U function. That's what we show in the paper. Yeah. So from a utilities perspective, then they, from a policy perspective, they they have like you said, threshold adoption rate. Uh, till then, they should actually encourage um, mm-hmm. customers to put uh, solar panels. And beyond that, <laughs> they they may want to discourage uh, further yes. adoption. Uh, it's kind of interesting, you know. I recently acquired an electric car, and the utility actually. Uh, said they will fund um, the um, uh, the charging station, uh, provided they have control over that. Uh, meaning they they will essentially charge the car <laughs> when they when they find it's optimum to charge the car. And uh, I suspect you know this is sort of the next wave of optimization that utilities could uh, start thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, uh, you know, um, what, what is happening now with the net metering, uh, as well as some of the other approaches in the energy sector, is now we have a lot more data yeah. uh, around usage. Uh, and that data can actually now be optimized uh, for the benefit of the customer, as well as for the benefit of the uh, utility. And it could also be used for the benefit of the environment, depending on what is the what is the criteria, the objective that the utility might have? Right. Yeah, it's going to probably become a more of a complex uh, equation as uh, customers start to create or buy storage uh, equipment as well. So mm-hmm. they could then be uh, you know making decisions whether to sell the excess energy or store it, and uh, and ultimately, you know, the optimization that network could change quite dramatically if that's the case. Exactly. So, uh, so in the net metering approach, also, there is that's basically how we model it, saying that well, you generate your own electricity, and if your electricity is generated is greater than your needs, you can put it back onto the grid. Right. Right. And. Um, most of the times, customers do find it to be convenient to put it on the grid, uh, just because of the difference. Uh, because it's either the the, the retail price. Uh, sometimes they might decide to store, which we are not seeing yet. But I think industrial customers might do that. This is mostly for the residential piece. But but I get what you're saying, which is basically if you have the opportunity to just take that excess electricity and then start storing it. Uh, you may decide to do that rather than putting it onto the grid yeah. at a lower lower price. Yeah, and that and that curve will shift. You know, so the storage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get higher levels of electric vehicle adoption, an electric vehicle is basically a storage of electricity, right? Yeah. So if if you know a large percentage of the customers have electric vehicles, then you have distributed storage uh, yeah. as well. 
And so generally, I think, you know, from your paper, um, there is a sort of a complex question for utilities to solve to, to maximize profits. And it's a dynamic question uh, as adoption rate changes, both in terms of production as well as storage. Sounds yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, another quick one, uh, Jay. So you have a paper, Blockchain Adoption for Combating Deceptive Counterfeits. And um, this is talking about manufactured goods um, yeah. and, and how blockchain could be adopted there. Yeah, so this, this uh, piece of work um, looks at, you know, uh, the potential for blockchain. You know, one of the benefits of blockchain is obviously, you know, you can track items and then you can trace them and you can get end-to-end visibility in theory. Um, you know, and, and so one of people have been asking, you know, beyond just uh, financial applications in fintech, what are some of the, um, you know, operational or supply chain type applications of blockchain? Yeah. So one area that is uh, kind of beginning to, you know, uh, become a, you know, popular or mainstream or we are seeing more pilots mm-hmm. in industry is around um, counterfeiting and, uh, and uh, how a manufacturer, uh, OEM in this particular case, can think about, count, you know, adopt, you know, implementing blockchain as uh, an approach that will uh, that could uh, prevent or reduce counterfeiting in the market mm-hmm. so the idea is the following right so typically how do firms prevent counterfeiting for products in the marketplace yeah. they might do uh, one of uh, uh, two strategies right so one is they might say well you know i have branded products that means i have really expensive so i do it through pricing mm-hmm. Uh, so counterfeiter, you know, uh, you know, will, will not, uh, you know, will not play that game because uh, they will, then those prices will look too exorbitant. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and customers will figure out which product is uh, the real one and which is the counterfeit one based on that price signal. Mm-hmm. That is one approach. The other approach is to say, I develop some customized way by which I can kind of signal to the customer that this is a, this is a real product. So I might put my own showrooms in there, mm-hmm. you know, where I just sell only directly to the customer, like Apple was doing in the beginning, right? So make sure that there's nothing that can be you know, changed in the process. They basically do it to go direct to the customer, get all the needs of the customer, and then you have complete confidence. Um, now, or you could do something some other people have started doing what we call as this approach. And an and authorized dealership is... Uh, another step in that same direction, but maybe not as aggressive as going direct, mm. is to have your uh, distribution channel that is completely authorized. And anytime you buy anything from any of these people, then you know that it is authentic. Yeah. Uh, or, you, you know, some of the companies have been trying to do things like, okay, let me put a hologram or something like that, a mechanism by which, you know, a customer can uh, check that and, and feel good about it, that it is actually a, a real product. Here's where blockchain, along with IoT, Mm -hmm. a simple IoT, uh, Internet of Things, Mm -hmm. uh, could actually be very beneficial. And uh, you're hearing more and more pilots of that type, for example. Um, uh, You know, Starbucks, you know, is planning to kind of have these uh, blockchain pilot implementations. 
education for their coffee, uh, which is you go into a store and you want to buy coffee, you scan that code on your Starbucks cell phone, I mean, on your Starbucks app on your cell phone. Yeah. And basically, it gives you the complete history of that packet. Right. So what's happening here, it's not a pub, completely public blockchain, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to go and change things on that. Right. But it gives you a, a peek into the, into the story of that Starbucks coffee. So if you're particularly worried about, you know, was this Starbucks coffee planted in a uh, socially conscious, responsible region mm -hmm. or not, you could check that. Hmm. You could also check things like how long has it been lying around in the supply chain, uh, right? So sometimes, you know, there's long lead times and then the inventory just stays in the supply chain and you're getting these products and they've been in the supply chain for a month or so. And that, you know, you, so customer can check on those kinds of things. Now, this is an example of uh, providing traceability hmm. in the value chain. Um, now, this does not necessarily deal with counterfeiting, right? So this is traceability. So there's one benefit of blockchains is traceability. Mm -hmm. uh, but counterfeiting, another approach, is it is being mostly used in high-value items, right? Uh, so diamonds, for example, right? Yeah. Um, so diamonds oftentimes, particularly when you're buying diamonds, expensive diamonds, you want to make sure that this was not a blood diamond. This is a big concern for people. Mm -hmm. So some companies are now putting blockchain implementation or traceabilities around, you know, just being able to, you know, verify if this diamond is coming from a right kind of mine in the right region yeah, with sustainable practices. Now, counterfeiting uh, examples are more in, in pharmaceutical mm -hmm. situations. Yeah. You know. Uh, you know, you, 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 you probably know uh, lots of drugs store, uh, sold in India, right. for example, are thick. And uh, so, you know, one of the things that Indian government, the UPI, is trying to do is to kind of come up with a blockchain implementation mm. uh, by which, you know, you as a customer can go and buy, look at that product, scan that code, and all of a sudden, um, you know, uh, you will know whether this is a, a real product mm. or a fake product. Mm. Because real products will be properly coded and you know, people will uh, you know, right. take care of them. So this is one example. The other example, other place where also this is getting traction now is in the luxury goods uh, category. Yeah. Like, like for example, Gucci bags and you know, these types of things. Where even some of the dealerships which are um, you know, which, which are selling on the internet, most of the items sold by them are, you know, real, but some of them could be fake. Yeah. Right? So those type of um, uh, settings as well, the manufacturer in this particular case, uh, you know, the brand is implementing blockchain to send that um, signal to the, to the customer. Mm -hmm saying, hey, this product is real. So this paper that we are studying um, is basically looking at a setting where uh, there is a manufacturer who's worried about this and that there is a counterfeiter 
in the marketplace. And there's a competition between the two. The manufacturer traditionally has a traditional mechanism of uh, pricing signaling, uh, but in addition now has uh, a blockchain implementation possibility. Yeah. And we kind of look at, you know, we actually characterize uh, how, when the manufacturer would actually go ahead and implement blockchain uh, and when they should do actually price signaling okay. uh, with the counterfeiter. There is, uh, a, there is an investment question, I would imagine, right? Yes, yeah. yes. So there is an investment question. There's a cost of implementation of blockchain and also there's an IoT to be put on each of the yeah. items. Otherwise, you know, blockchain in itself is not going to be enough. You need to have an IoT that will track the movement uh, of the item through the supply chain. So, and, uh, yeah. so, the, the, so the, the product has to be valuable mm -hmm. uh, and there is a threshold there. And I guess what you're saying is that the, the price signaling is not sufficiently robust uh, to avoid counterfeiting. Um, and it might be, like you say, in pharmaceuticals, um, it might also be, uh, it, it, it might become a regulatory requirement, right? Um, yeah. if, you know, if you're getting API, uh, active yeah. pharmaceutical ingredients manufactured somewhere and you want to control the impurities and things like that in it um, quite closely. Yes. So one of the things that we model in the paper is, you know, um, the customer's reaction as well, which is, you know, typically when we are buying these products, we, we have to give out some information in the form of a credit card or whatever. Yeah. But we can be fairly private in that in that transaction unless we really wanted to make it public. Yeah. Um, but when you go into a blockchain type of implementation, and particularly if it is a public-private blockchain, hmm. then it raises some questions in the minds of the customer that do I want to be giving this information about myself? For example, yeah. in, in the Starbucks case, the only way for you to get to know about more about the coffee is you've got to use that app. Right. And through that app, you're telling the company where you're going to be at what time right, and so on right. and so forth. And so there is a customer privacy aspect that also we model mm -hmm. to kind of, um, you know, it's just kind of new in this paper where we look at, you know, the customer reluctance to maybe share that information right. when there is blockchain. Um, and then the other angle that we look at is, which is looking at the NITI-IO India example mm -hmm. is to say, uh, in which case the government is actually, you know, heavily involved in this process, uh, is to say, does it make sense for government as a social planner yeah. uh, to subsidize blockchain implementation by the manufacturer? Right. And so what we find is actually there's a very interesting result in that in that part of the paper is that, uh, in, so the other way a social planner or government can help is through enforcement. That means you have lots of police and you put a lot of effort to catch the thieves and so on and so forth to right. punish them. Uh, what we find is actually, you know, uh, giving, providing subsidy to the manufacturer for such an implementation may have a win-win-win impact, uh, which means the government wins, the customer wins, and the manufacturer wins as well. Yeah, so, so the government providing subsidy uh, to the manufacturer, manufacturer implementing it, uh, if it is... Uh, if it is working, Jay, wouldn't uh, wouldn't that alone take care of the problem? Meaning, uh, if no customer uh, is actually buying a counterfeited product because they can actually check it, then mm -hmm. the market for counterfeiting uh, over time should disappear, right? 
Yeah, but there are some people who may want to buy a counterfeit. So, <laughs> okay, okay. Because the price is so low. Right, right. Even though it is deceptive, that means they don't know whether they're getting a real one or a, a, a fake one. Yeah. But their propensity or ability to pay, right. the price may be limited. So they basically get the one that they get some, even if they get an epsilon positive valuation, they'll go and buy it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so before we close, yeah, I want to get your uh, perspectives and insights into uh, the COVID-19 shock uh, to the global supply chain. Some of the tactical effects are, uh, are already, uh, already seen. Um, you know, uh, sometimes uh, companies who have invested into fairly concentrated, brittle supply chains because they moved to a low-cost country, uh, they tend to be very brittle. Uh, in the presence of a shock. So I think they are learning that. Uh, but I want to get your perspectives on what is going to happen in the long run here uh, to, to decisions made by these companies uh, in the supply chain. These companies meaning, you know, multinationals, uh, you know, who, who may have gotten into fairly concentrated uh, manufacturing locations in the supply chain. Yeah, so, you know, this is a great question. So um, if you think about supply chain, global supply chains and the evolution over the last 20 years, you see that actually supply chains have become uh, more efficient yeah. uh, and, and they've also become more focused, yeah. which means you've got, you know, lots of uh, activity in regions which have expertise, which have lower cost structure, and then the the logistics around the creation of the product and the supplying it to the customer base has been optimized also quite well. Mm. Now, this is a good and a bad thing. Obviously, supply chains have become global and they're very successful and then companies all know that their supply chains are, are their heartbeat, right? So when the supply chain stops, then their company stops, right? So um, now, so in that sense, it's been a really good journey for the last 20 years uh, to see supply chain become a strategic part of a firm. Yeah. And um, so with the COVID, I think what has happened now is that many companies um, are beginning to recognize or, or, or already recognize uh, that this is, um, uh, you know, uh, too efficient, if there's a word like too efficient, right? <laughs> Um, and what you need is resiliency, yeah. which is how can we bounce back uh, rather rapidly uh, from whatever adversity that we face. Mm. And uh, to build resiliency, unfortunately, it doesn't happen overnight. And that's why many companies are struggling uh, to respond effectively is because of this reason. Yeah. Uh, some, be some are doing much better than others, but many of them are still figuring out these strategies. Um, it's hard to predict how everything will pan out, but, but my conjecture is that the following, right? <laughs> so we're going to see that more uh, companies are going to look at um, what we call as hybrid um, sourcing, yeah. uh, which is you would still want to have um, a core supplier that is highly efficient and maybe in a low cost um, country uh, that years that, that makes most of the things for you, but you also want to diversify mm. and have a couple of other suppliers um, who are closer 
more responsive, uh, have less risk, maybe less political risk. Um, you know, one big change, one big thing that's happened in these 20 years is that supply chains have become highly, highly concentrated in the China region yeah. for most products. And so, um, you know, given the geopolitical way things are panning out, I think most of the uh, senior management and supply chain managers are basically going, you know, do we really want to be in that risk situation? Um, and so I think in the long run, we're going to see that is going to be one big change, which is focus more on resiliency. Uh, and, and that might come more in the form of uh, supplier diversification. Mm. The second thing that is going to, in my opinion, happen uh, in a rather big way because of this COVID disruption is the what we were talking about earlier around data and analytics and artificial intelligence, yes. this acceleration uh, of uh, digitization, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, I think more and more across industries, firms are becoming more comfortable with the fact that, hey, I don't need uh, a face-to-face -face human interaction to make a decision. Right. Uh, I, I can automate it. I can make it better. And, and in fact, the companies that have been doing this for the last four or five years are having the biggest winners in the last few months. You look at you know, a Walmart, you look at a Target, you look at an Amazon, you look at an Apple. These companies have been leading the way in terms of digitization yeah. um, and digital transformation. Uh, of business processes. So I, I believe this um, trend is going to accelerate. And um, this will be another big change um, in terms of how supply chains are running. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, the supply chains were put together when the human content in the products were reasonably high. And, and hence, you know, the attractiveness to a low cost, uh, low cost country from a human labor perspective so from a strategic perspective companies have you know multiple choices you know they could they could like you say make it hybrid make it for flexible they could also head down a path i think that's what what you're saying which is let's continue to reduce the human uh, human content in the product and at the limit you could actually get a zero human uh, content product uh, at which case you know the, the location becomes irrelevant I think the location advantage because of labor, obviously, you know, as you rightly pointed out, is going down yeah. uh, rapidly, uh, and uh, and the digitization uh, of the uh, of the processes uh, and the information content in the processes, as opposed to the pure human element in the processes. That's that's um, you know the the digital content is increasing, and as as digital content increases, I think there is a uh, rather than a linear, there's actually an exponential possibilities in terms of productivity improvements. And so I think um, that's that is going to be really exciting uh, in the next few years. Uh, in the next decade, if we look back, I would, I would suspect those two, uh, we would have seen those two effects on the global supply chains. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the downside, um, yeah, it's a different topic, but I want to get your perspective on this. So you know, we already have very large companies in the economy. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but one could argue a very high percentage of the GDP is uh, held by maybe a dozen companies today. 
and they are rich in cash. They have no investment constraints and, and they can do all of that. And they, in the process, they could become more competitive. And in the process, they could wipe out <laughs> any competition uh, that might have existed uh, pre-COVID. So post-COVID, if we had some concentration pre-COVID, uh, we might end up with 10x that concentration post-COVID. Do you see that or no? Um, yes and no. I think uh, on one hand, I kind of, you know, kind of agree with you that, you know, the bigger companies have all the cloud, they have all the data, they have all the optimization, they have all the money and resources, so therefore they'll wipe out the smaller players. However, there's also another effect that is happening with this digitization. Yeah. And is which is basically the flattening of the competition, mm. right? So, um, say, let's take 20 years ago, right? 20 years ago, if you said, oh, I want to be an e-commerce player, right? Mm. Um, in order to do anything like that, you would have to actually physically go ahead and set up some things and, right. you know, a warehouse and a website and all these things, right? right. So if you had a great idea, you needed a lot of fixed investment as a small player to even get the business rolling. Mm. On the other hand, today, if you wanted to set up something like that, you basically have ability to outsource almost everything yeah. in your business model. Right. Uh, that means the fixed cost that you need to start up a business initially is not that high. Unless you are doing like something really, really profound, like, you know, building a rocket to go to the Mars. If that is not the case, I think, and, and what that does now is that gives an incentive or an opportunity for newcomers, mm -hmm. small players to come into the market with disruptive innovations. Mm -hmm. Now, will they be acquired even before they get really big? Or will the <laughs> things be copied really rapidly? Yeah. One cannot have an answer for that. But uh, but there, those risks obviously exist. However, the the opportunity to actually make a difference is a very, very small player. Yeah. Uh, as long as you're not in a physical space, uh, I think the, the effect that you're talking about will mostly be felt in the physical space of business models, mm. uh, such as retail, for example, right. where I think the smaller retail players will have a terrible time in the next uh, few years yeah, uh, because the bigger players are just going to eat their lunch. Uh, and now, if you're in that kind of an industry, absolutely, you're going to have that problem. But if you're not in one of those industries where the physical element is just so important, um, you know, I think uh, there might be greater competition and greater opportunity for you. Yeah, yeah. And, and the outcome, obviously, is a function of the length of the shock. Um, if we don't have a vaccine for a year and we have multiple waves of infections happening, it's a different story altogether. <laughs> yeah, so this has been uh, great, Jay. And uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. And uh, good luck with all your work. Well, thank you, Gail, for the opportunity to chat with you. I enjoyed it very much and uh, um, look forward to other meetings later on. Thanks. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye.